All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talking, touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork. Still 40 photographers on process and practice. That joke was so not funny and so subtle, no one's even going to know I made it. But anyway, um, I'm Sasha I Wolf. thought you were holding for applause. I was. I was. <laughs> that, that is so often the case in my life. <laughs> There's a thing you can do if you wait long enough, people, you get at least nervous laughter. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nervous oh. laughter will be the title of my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Well, I'm Sasha Wolf, and that guy who always, thank God, cracks up—the man from New Jersey, Mr. Michael Chovin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hi, Sasha. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Back, back in the classroom, and which always makes me happy, but uh, especially in the spring when I get my returning students. So, you know, we already know each other and it's just yeah. great. You know, we, we hit the ground running. I love when spring, sem- there's like spring semester, but it's like dead of winter. Anyway, always like, yeah, that was weird. I know. Mm. <laughs> Fall and spring. It's, yeah. all, it's all we go. And it's mostly in winter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a uh, couple things. A, we have a great episode today. It's a conversation with the photographer Rahim Fortune, who I represent. Yes. And so it was really fun to sit down and record with Rahim. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a little bit of a mention of the following episode. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Kenneth Montague, who many of you probably don't know because he's not a famous artist. But he's an incredibly important collector. And he's put together a really remarkable collection. And Aperture has just published a book of part of the collection. And I'd love people to just sort of familiarize themselves a little bit leading up to the episode with Dr. Montague and and what this is. So the book is called As We Rise, Photography from the Black Atlantic, Selections from the Wedge Collection. And it's described this way, As We Rise presents an exciting compilation of photographs from African diasporic culture with over 100 works by black artists from Canada, the Caribbean, Great Britain, the United States, South America, as well as throughout the African continent. This volume provides a timely exploration of black identity on both sides of the Atlantic. So Dr. Montague's collection is really famous to us uh, art dealers. (laughs) I've known... (laughs) Ken, not, I don't know him well, but I've sold him work in the past. Uh, proud to have some of my artists work in his collection. And his collection's extraordinary from Carrie Mae Weems to Sadu Keita, Barkley L. Hendricks, Dina Lawson, Jamel Shabazz. I mean, on, on, on. Um, there's some great essays in the book. It's a wonderful book. And I'm really looking forward to talking with Dr. Montague about you know, how he started collecting and wound up with this collections that's now considered incredibly important. Yeah. Um, 
So, okay, on to today's episode. So it was, I think, a really wonderful conversation. I will say that if folks are waiting for the moment where Rahim and I have a wrong conversation or a conversation (laughs) about (laughs) his really heralded book, I Can't Stand to See You Cry, don't hold your breath because... (laughs) 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 There's a lot already out there about that project, and I decided to take this opportunity to really introduce the audience to Rahim and let Rahim's story of how he sort of came to be where he is today be the real thread of this episode, because he's so self-taught, and his, his origin story... I think is just really fascinating. So that's Absolutely. what we focus on. Yeah. And and I think that was a it was a great decision because I didn't know it. I was fortunate that we were able to record all in person yeah. on this one. And I got to meet Rahim and you know, I knew about his book and but I never met him and I didn't know a lot about him. And wow, uh he's just so impressive in every way and just his this hunger for knowledge and he's always looking and he's always reading and he's I mean it's just he's just incredible. Yep. You know, obviously you have to be extremely talented, but <laughs> one other thing that really helps to get to where Rahim is and where he's going is to be dedicated to doing the amount of work to learn mm-hmm. that that he does. I think that's that's something that really becomes clear in this in this talk. I apologize ahead of time for my voice today, my voice during the recording. It's particularly bad right now. Don't know why, but I was joking to you before we started recording that I sound like I was, <laughs> you know, performing at like Webster Hall last night until two in the morning in, in, in some punk band where I was screaming a lot. Uh, not the case, but anyway. Well, without further ado, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure, and here is your conversation with Rahim Fortune. Rahim Fortune, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. Great to have you here. Yes, thank you for having me. It's great to see you. I think it's been a little over maybe like a month or so since we last got to see each other in person. So it's, yeah, great to see you again. So for our listeners, we're recording in person, which um, we've only done once before in the history of the PhotoWork podcast. And not only am I sitting here with, with Rahim, which is awesome, but Michael Chauvin Dalton's in the house. Hey. <laughs> and uh, I haven't seen Michael in over two years. So I know. It was like a double take. Like, oh, yeah, that's what we look like we're in person without you. <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> anyway, so this is really exciting. So obviously, you know, we start every podcast with the bio, and I'd really love you to just sort of let yours rip, air it out, because, you know, so many of the guests that have been on have had sort of similar journeys, and yours is very different, and I think is going to be really interesting to people and useful. So anyway. Yeah, so I guess the the kind of abridged version. Um, no, no abridged. Well, what I was, I was, it's a very long story of how I got to photography. And so some of the key points of growing up, uh, was born in Austin, Texas, and, you know, mid-90s. Growing up there, a lot of, you know, formative memories 
having um, a much older brother who who um, put me onto a lot of music, and so those memories are very much filled with a lot of like Texas hip hop culture, which is very formative to my interests and uh, some of my influences. So growing up, becoming familiarized with like uh, like pop trunk culture, which like I'm sure if you're not familiar with pop and pop and trunk and you know so there was this thing where people would pop their trunks and they would have words displayed in the trunk and it would be like a message and it's a part of a very particular car culture and hip-hop uh you know pop trunk wave and so as a very early as a little kid i was really obsessed with basketball and hip-hop culture through my older brother who was kind of like vetting me to be like this rapper and point guard at the same time at a very young age, picking me up from school and playing basketball, him making his own uh, rap music. So that was a very early influence. And then in third grade, so I have to imagine like this is like kindergarten, first grade, (laughs) you know, all really into this. I think in the kindergarten talent show, I played the drums. And then the first grade talent show, I rapped (laughs) for for all of my classmates. So I was always really because my father is a drummer and so I have a, a lot of musical influences I'm kind of you know I remember a very early memory with my father was since my prepubescent voice he made me hit the falsetto for one of the songs and was like really making me harmonize with him and I was like so embarrassed just like singing in this high voice but looking back it was a very I was learning about harmony and uh things like that so you know, fast forward to third grade. So all, as I said, all of this, when I was very young, third grade, I moved to Oklahoma where my mother's family was from the Chickasaw nation. And so this was a complete 180 change, go from living outside of Austin, Texas, a major city where, you know, my family had been for many years. My father had been for many years to moving to this very rural, very monolithic place where everything is a bit the same there's not much outside influence and it's been this way for years but I think as a kid being in third grade I was like oh wow it looks fun to play out here you know that's my was my thinking at the time so it wasn't too much of a shake-up because I was also interested in the fact that now I lived on acreage and you know this was uh, my family's land that was given to them you know when they arrived at Oklahoma from Mississippi uh, which is you know a a part of the history of the Chickasaw people. They're not native to Oklahoma, but were moved to Oklahoma and given uh, land allotments and new names. And that's kind of where that history starts in about 1860-ish, 18, you know, when my great, great, you know, grandfather five times removed gets there and gets this land and it kind of starts this like other part of my family history. So really thrown into that, I lived in a, a single wide trailer that my great grandparents had lived in previously, but had passed away and not lived in for some time. So it was, you know, precursor to my maybe interest in abandoned houses and, you know, some of these things because I really moved into an abandoned house that was covered in VHS tapes. There were handmade shelves on the walls that were covered in VHS tapes. And I guess near the end of my great grandparents' life, they started just filming everything on television and marking it but also not filming the commercials. So it's very, very (laughs) tedious. And so we would watch these tapes when we moved there as we're renovating the house. And then my mother fixed up this house, new carpet, new furniture. And there's actually a set of almost like panoramic disposable photos that she took of the interiors 
which those photos are extremely haunting to look at now. Um, so to see this kind of remaking of your life, you know, post-divorce, these images that she took of the interior that, you know, were documents and very descriptive of the making of a home for children. And who, who was there? It was you and me, your mom my sister, and your sister. My, yeah. yeah, me, my mom, and my sister. Um, my little sister who, you know, is probably one of the, that's actually the only person that through my entire life has never had a period of absence. Yep. And she appears in, you know, both of my books. Yep. You know, she's definitely very involved. She, a in, constant. Yeah, she actually was the person who pulled the shutter for the cover image of I Can't Stand to See You Cry. She kind of racked the focus for yep. us. and Credit for sis. I know. Yep. I told her, I was yeah. like, hey, well, if you ever, you know, you need work, I guess you could maybe say you've shot a couple photos, but you maybe don't want in on this. <laughs> <laughs> on this life but she she completely understands photography and it's it's great um i love her to death yeah so we're we're in oklahoma and you know we have horses and things like that and my mother took a lot of photographs but so i can you know expand on that maybe later because my time in oklahoma would lead to my first serious body of work that i kind of started to understand how interested i really was in making photographs and what it, what its purpose it served for me, it, you know, what it allowed for me to do. So my mother passed away in 2007 and we moved back to Texas with my father. And so thrown back into the opposite spectrum of things, I go back to Texas and now I'm in a city. I'm kind of this country kid. I had definitely become an Okie over those <laughs> couple years. And so I get back to, to Texas, but my interest was at that time in skateboarding, which was something that I had already become fascinated with in Oklahoma, even though I had no paved roads, <laughs> simply dirt roads. So I remember I had a small slab of concrete built that I would play basketball on and skateboard on. It was maybe 12 feet by 12 feet. And then the horses walked on it. So <laughs> there, it was all crushed up. Had uh, to share. And, and so it is, yeah, it was really, once I got to this back to Texas, you know, the blow of moving was lessened by wow now I'm in the country it was kind of the reverse like wow now I have concrete and can skate and so skateboarding really served as something that I was just so interested in and it really helped me to to heal and have something to really be like want to go out every day and progress at and, and at that time I also started playing music um, you know my father still being a musician he got me like my dream guitar for Christmas one year and so I had guitar and skateboard and that was just you know normal like teenage boys boy stuff so yeah I mean keep going I get through high school and then I start playing in bands played in a couple of bands and went on a few tours playing music um, and then at, during that time I was making videos of our tours on an old compact VHS camera and I think that that was kind of when I started to get really into the idea of just making images and making you know moving images get my first camera from a thrift store i'm really just going through no get, no yeah. I, please okay get my first camera at a thrift store that i was working at it was it went on this tag day so i got it for 99 cents oh i like gosh. waited out the five weeks yep. where like the tag day finally it was the green tags everything's 99 cents I've told this story before, but I finally, I don't know why I didn't just, you know, but that shows where I was at. I, di I di couldn't get it when it was 30. I had to wait till it was yeah. 99 cents. And then I got it and I had no understanding of like camera settings. And I remember like trying to take pictures with it in the dark and the shutter speed was automatic. So it was like staying open and I'm like waving the camera around like it won't close like this. 
like no idea what I was doing, but I think maybe made a few photos that I liked. And yeah, that's really where my interest in photography started. So how, how do you, I mean, there's still so much missing. How do you go from <laughs> that to, to today? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I was working at kitchens in Texas, kind of like in my early 20s, my first years on my own. Music had slowed down for me. So I wasn't doing as much music. I was more just you know, that's what that's the period where I was started maybe just taking film photographs of friends and, you know, very amateur, just snapshot things of just photographing friends at, you know, a party or at the skate park or at my apartment. Then a, a job opened up at a local lab and I saw that and I was like, wow, I'm, I'm a line cook right now. Like developing film sounds like a really cool job. Like this would be incredible if I could get this. I think I went to like the interview in like a like a suit or something like really like I have to make sure I get this job and they call me back and I get the position and by so, the way it's sort of amazing because this couldn't have been that long ago 10 years ago or 2015 uh, yeah I mean yeah I'm shocked there's still a lab in Texas in, we got two <laughs> labs in town okay. in, in Austin there's yeah. two labs that still operate one is like old school Naritsu machines and the other one is an actual dip and dunk lab um so they got two spots there and there's a pretty big you know demand for film processing so I would go there and start learning about scanning film but um one of the local Austin residents Eli Reed would come in and was good friends with the owner of the camera store because this is kind of like a the store I worked at is kind of like the Texas version of B&H they're uh one of the major camera stores like people like Dan Winters would come in and people who were shooting in uh, Austin at the time. So Eli Reed came in and needed to to make some prints. And I ended up just kind of working with him, helping him out because a lot of other people didn't have the patience for him. And I was really fascinated with the fact that he was there being this kind of legendary magnum photographer to just kind of be in this local lab making some color prints. So that was super cool. And so we started um, maybe hanging out for like a week and I helped him get some prints for a grant proposal you know it was to me at the time I was like oh my gosh I'm being mentored by Eli Reed but he I'd probably have to remind him who I was you know it was but it was very impactful on me to just hear him talk about it and become more aware of um, photojournalism and fine art photography documentary photography really starting to understand it as a language as something that had its own like you know substantial history to it and that was really my introduction to I guess the like documentary vision um, was through Eli Reed meeting him so you know then I had someone tell me that the best photos that I was making were some of the photographs I was just making of my friends in a way that felt I guess honest or intimate you know some Mm -hmm. of just like you know the other like young men that I was around someone you know gave me criticism that that was some of the better images that they were seeing of everything that I was shooting Um, so I kind of started to focus in on that and taking early attempts at street portraiture in Austin and so that's really where I started to form my my voice as a photographer was that and then also learning you know darkroom was also really was big for me because I was from the beginning fascinated with just the act of processing film the this like the kind of reward of it of pulling the negatives out and then in the morning they'll be ready to scan and then after that you go shoot and you repeat and that was really fun to me and that was a big part of why I instantly gravitated towards making black and white photographs 
I mean, um, the material part of it, I know, is very important to you. And I, I relate to that. So, you know, in some ways, when people switch to shooting digitally, it's harder for me to understand really just from that sort of standpoint, because the materiality, the touching of things, of film, of chemistry, of, you know, all that is to me, as it is, I know, to you, so much a part of the process that's engaging and and interesting. Let me ask you, you had to have been really starting to look at work at this point. I mean, even when you just said sort of in passing that you're starting to take sort of street portraits, you know, obviously you had to have been looking at things to even know what that is. So what are you looking at at this point? Hmm. I, I think some of the early influences that I was seeing at the time was things that were just on the Magnum website. I would go and look at Eli Reed's work and then it would be, you know, you could see Martin Parr and mm-hmm. you could see Alex Soth and then also a current of, you know, photographers on Instagram, primarily an account uh, called Street Etiquette that was doing kind of this classic style photog- uh, portraiture and lifestyle photography of young people in Brooklyn. And there was a couple of short films that came out that were at the time, it was almost like that scene was almost like a 60s revival, like the way that the people were Mm -hmm. dressing. There's Mm -hmm. artists like Leon Bridges. And Mm -hmm. there was very much this thing of like, reclaiming of historical. And so that was also another current that was starting at that time. So those two things kind of married was also like you know now the way that I was photographing my friends was maybe a little bit more informed that I was you know had gotten my first medium format camera and was processing my negatives and was looking at Eli Reed's work and was looking at Bruce Davidson's work and kind of understood but I think with street portraits it took a long time and it's something that I'm still learning about my uh, relationship to that but I think at the beginning it wasn't super informed maybe also like Renika Distra or like, uh, you know, August Sanders tribute, kind of just try to put someone in the center of the frame and just think that it's going to make a good photo. And now I know that it, there's so much more that goes into making, saying something with the photograph or maybe at that time, it was about just learning how to approach people and make photographs of people that I didn't know. But I think that was, yeah, mostly what, what was informing that, those early attempts at making images. So how did you go from that time to now? Like, how do you develop a career? Because you have a pretty solid career going now. Well, so I moved to New York in 2016, 2000, no, 2017. I moved to New York during the summer, started going to BMCC Community College. And my interaction with the other students was really great because I was getting out of Texas. I was meeting all of these students who were actually a little bit younger than me. And it was just a real eye opener to the condition of young people with like no adults around because in Texas, there's such a, I wasn't in school. So it was like the unity with other young people was maybe coming out of like other activities, like going to a concert or being um, at the skate park or something. And it was not, going to school in the city was so much more just eye-opening to me I guess it's the only way I can really describe it in a few people that I met but I actually would made a few photographs while I was attending school so I would bring my camera to school and make photographs of some of my classmates and what do you what classes are you taking I mean I was studying sociology so I was just taking like basic math classes and had a few sociology courses so you're still not thinking at this point I'm gonna be a 
photographer. Well, I was still wanted to be a photographer, but I wanted it to be from like um, a perspective of being more invested with human, mm -hmm. with human interaction and the ethics of like studying culture and um, human behavior and the photos being an after, not an afterthought, but being like a byproduct of a deeper connection with people. So that I was thinking more access, like I like, well, the photographs I can learn how to make, but the access and the not even want to say ethics, because I don't think that sociology program is going to necessarily give you your own moral compass. But that's what what I was thinking with my choice to study sociology. And so that was really, really great. And then also I was living in, uh, I was living in Flatbush at the time. So was making some photographs in Flatbush, making some street portraits as well and making, you know, started making some, some photographs in New York as well. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, I'm, I'm going to get to the point of how I got to here because it is a long story. And some of those points, it's hard to understand without, you know, some of these smaller things that happen. You're a good storyteller. It's okay. I did. I tried to do like even like an editorial shoot at one point where the photos were just absolutely bad. You know, I hate to say it. I'm sad, but it was bad, and it, and it actually didn't make it into the magazine. And that was something that I had to deal with early too. Of like, wow, I can't be mad at anybody. Like, I actually didn't do that good, and I know what I was trying to do, but it it didn't work. And I still, you know, think I I learned a lot from that because I still deal with that with trying to actually figure out how to articulate. Um, certain ideas that I have and so started to uh, pitch some editorial jobs to people and one of them that got picked up was through Suited Magazine and I, I did a feature on classical musicians in New York, three um, black contemporary classical musicians who have practices both in the uh, classic art form but also in a more experimental and I just thought of that that was a very good kind of metaphor for what I was interested in in photography was this idea of like classical, but how is it new? Why is it new? How is it important? Why do we need to think about it in juxtaposition to history? And so featuring these three up and coming, um, well, some of them have, are, you know, actually really great. They've done some incredible things. And I also did the interview portion. So I wrote, I did the writing. So it was, you know, the first time I, in print in a magazine, it was Images and Words by Raheem Fortune. And so that was very um, important. And that was the first like uh, story where I started to uh, shoot four by five on. And I think that it just showed that I was maybe maturing a little bit in maybe my vision, but also in the ability to make something concise because, you know, with Instagram at the time, it's like these one-off photographs where you're just sharing them and there's very little connection between them or being digested as a sequence or anything like that. And I think, and that really doesn't change. I mean, I, I, I make the mistake sometimes of showing like a photo friend, like something that I love that I shot on my phone. And the reaction is always the same of like, if I, sh I might as well just show them a meme because that might get more of a just draw. It's like the, not a good platform for seeing images. So some of the photographs that at this point, I'm already making photographs in Oklahoma because also oh, this is important to go back. When I went to New York, I realized how different where I grew up was like, whoa, that place has a lot of character that mm -hmm. I never saw yeah. because I was just, you that's the post office. Right. That's the lady on yep. the porch, like the things you see every day. Um, so when I came to New York, I was like, wow, actually there's so much about where I'm from. That's so interesting. And so I had never been back to Oklahoma since leaving in 2007. So 10 years later, 
I decided that I wanted to go back. And so at the time, I don't even think I was old enough to rent a car. I think my father rented a car for my sister and I. And I drove out to Oklahoma to my grandmother's house for the first time to see where I grew up. And so that was such a life-changing experience. It's like seeing something you haven't seen in a decade. You've only been alive for two decades, so there's not that much point of reference, but it's not new to you. Mm -hmm. It was really, really, uh, you know, flooring just to experience that. And I think the camera was helped me to want to see more Mm -hmm. where I might have continued to kind of guard my eyes from that, you know, that part of my life. But the, the camera was like really allowed me to to feel like something was coming from it and there was something to show for it and there was something to finally make it real, I guess. Are you thinking that you might, if you hadn't had the camera, you might not have gotten as involved because it was sad because your mom wasn't around anymore and the camera sort of made the painful feelings somehow worth it? I mean, is that... No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, also I you know, up until just maybe in 2020, nobody from outside of my family had ever seen where I grew up. There was yeah. like very little point of reference for this part of my life. Like if I explained it, you might not believe me. It's so far from what is normal that people can't really imagine it. So until you actually see what what this town looks like, yeah, it was it to to be able to, to show parts of that into, I don't know, I don't even want to say like be proud of it, but like like someone to see the photograph and be like, wow, that's really something. And mm-hmm. to be like, yes, this is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a part of me, yep. you know, that was, a, it, it was something that was, you know, felt um, empowering. And yeah, I don't think that I would have been as interested in revisiting some of these towns and driving past some of these places where family members used to work and where I used to go to school if I wasn't taking away something, you know, yes. to show for yeah. it. But, you know, also going out there, seeing my grandmother, it was the complete opposite of the this, this city. So, you know, if I was in New York for a period of time, going to Oklahoma was like the complete opposite where your phone doesn't work. It's just completely like if you ever wanted to go out off the grid and write a screenplay or something like my grandma's house would be the the like artist retreat. So it was, you know, pretty, pretty good for that too. And also it's like my grandma never got into internet culture. Like she still reads catalogs and browses the TV guide and the point of conversation is, you know, I would be sitting there and she'd be like, you know, if you ever make a garden, you got to plant black eyed peas first because they put the right minerals into the soil before you plant anything else, you know, that's, and I'm just like, wow, that's great. And then she's like, you know, back, just like this, all yeah. of these things. Yeah. And she, so she was also really inspirational because she reads like a lot of Western and romance novels. Mm-hmm. So like she doesn't necessarily speak as much about it, but I just know that she just has this deep understanding of like stories and narratives. Mm-hmm. And so she's, you know, that genre fiction, the ultimate story. I mean, that's the thing about genre in in writing is it's 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 always a narrative story first. Yeah. So she she was great to be able to visit with and to uh, get so much family history that I didn't have beforehand. I mean, dates, learning things, being Chickasaw, you have to be able to prove your lineage, which Mm -hmm. is a whole other crazy thing. And so there is this big connection to knowing exactly like who your relatives are Mm -hmm. what dates because a lot of that stuff you have to be able to prove it to hold on to your land and to maintain tribal status so I got a lot of information from her um, and I think that it 
demystified some things for me but yeah that was so that was happening at the same time that i'm doing this music musician story i spoke of and so having those two things come out i think that i started to my work was starting to get taken a little bit more serious yep and then that kind of leads you know up until the year of the pandemic where i complete the the book i can't stand to see you cry yeah and earlier in that year was when i self-published oklahoma in two volumes um really as a means of sustaining myself as an artist i needed i will i also plan to keep working on oklahoma and then when the pandemic hit i needed to see the photos physically and when i made like the mock-up book i i felt good enough about it. i was like i, I think i want to put this out into the world and yeah i i i'm happy i did it because i think that Otherwise, it would have been difficult for people to get a grasp on those photographs through like an online feature or something that wasn't physical or felt um, had like it had some, you know, a finished quality to it. So how do you understand when all of a sudden you start getting, you know, calls to shoot on assignment and all of a sudden you seem to be quite popular you know, how do you understand that at the time and how do you experience it at the time? So I was a, a photo assistant before for quite some time. So I had worked for people who were already doing it very well. And so I had a bit understanding of like, not all that glitters is gold. These is what rates look like. Um, this is what working for a certain publications means, you know, good or bad. So I had some understanding of a little bit uh, of to have some discernment mm -hmm. of, you know, what was coming in, but it didn't happen, you know, really quickly. For example, I had some photographs in maybe 2019 that came out through Vogue of mm -hmm. um, the Juneteenth parade in Austin. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely so I was so happy about that, you know, when that happened. And also uh, so many people from the community were really excited about that because to see our oh, yeah. hometown parade <laughs> on Vogue, yeah. you know, Amazing. and to like, it was just really cool. It was, so that was also pre-pandemic. So that was one thing that had started. And um, as far as early assignments, I think during the pandemic, so much shifted just as in narratives, because I, you know, before the pandemic, my work was not getting the same level of attention. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, the work had matured, but there was less reliance during that time on kind of polished commercial imagery mm -hmm. where you know it's about the celebrity and the colored backdrop and there's like some element of like colored lighting or it's very pastel and it's like these are the photos that I was lighting previously and these photographers are working constantly at this time someone who can work on their own you know on the ground one camera and can like get in there and tell a story became really needed by the publications and some people did it wrong you know some publications did things that got a lot of backlash but it seems like everyone was trying to respond to that mm -hmm. so i worked on two pieces at that point which was the new york times source of self-regard mm -hmm. which was curated by deborah willis and i ended up getting the cover image of that sunday paper yep and that was a really really big accomplishment because at this time, you know, my father is ill and I'm caregiving for him. And so I was in a very heightened emotional state. Did your dad see that? He cover? did see that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He saw that. He, he, um, must have been, yeah. yeah he, he the saw the Oklahoma book be published. Yeah. He saw, um, cause I mean, I was ordering maybe in boxes of like 75 and I, and just they were sending them out. I think the first batch I sold them all through DM. Like mm. it was very, like, yeah. you know, out the trunk. Yeah. But, um, so he was always like, wow, son, like, what the hell? People like really want these books. And he's had, you know, he saw those photos and 
it was probably painful for him to see it, to be like, wow, my son, like, you know, this is what he is thinking, but he was also moved by it because I know he had a lot of sadness about my mother passing. Yeah. Maybe that seeing the book, you know, made it more concrete for him, but he was always really moved by the fact that I went back for that story. You know, he's like, wow, son, you, you went back. Cause I don't know there, it could have been very easy to look the other way. And maybe there's a history of, you know, men not embracing or confronting these things that might haunt you for a life. For but a he lifetime. was an artist himself. So he had an artist soul. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me get back on, on track. The, the source of self-regard piece comes out and the cover image was really important for me. I just, I was so happy with the way that they edited that and just graphically it was, mm-hmm. it really was moving. Um, and that is when Doug found out about my work was through Doug Du Bois for people who don't, yeah. don't know who, who Doug is. But um, that piece comes out, Rolling Stone reaches out to me and they asked me if I want to work on something. And they pretty much gave me free reigns. They said, what do you, what story do you want to, to tell right now? And at the time, Austin was uh, erupted with the protest, both for George Floyd, but also for Mike Brown, an armed black man who was killed in Austin. And so a lot of protests were happening. Um, I had a friend who was struck by a non-lethal round and had to have like a, a limb saving surgery. And so things were really heightened at this point. And I was, you know, my sister dealing with um, schools being shut down and my all of her children being at home. So there was just all of these things kind of boiling on the surface that I thought were a bit more important to showcase maybe rather than like the protest, which I was seeing. It was like all of these photographers had been locked up for six months and then the protest erupted and it was like this great subject to go out and photograph and I was really not interested in seeing it for multiple reasons you know protester safety and narrative things like that so I wanted to make something that was almost my response to those images which would be much more softer and engaged because we had been speaking about these issues so much prior to this moment and so I wanted to almost have this um, piece be like, where are we at now realistically? And so these images, a lot of them which made it into the book were, you know, photographs of friends expecting children during COVID, uh, my father's health, my sister and her children, my friend recovering from his gunshot wound. And that piece ran in Rolling Stone and I did a small film for it. And that's when things really started to pick up. And I think, you know, New York Times Magazine reached out and they asked me to do the COVID-19 story, yep. you know, and then Time Magazine. I did a story in Rosewood, Florida on the descendants of the Rosewood massacre. And so a lot of a, a lot of things did. Yeah, they started to come in at that point. But it was like, you know, such a slow like working up to it that I think I was ready once it happened. And it was actually it was it was difficult to do some of those assignments because I had to leave home leave my father's side taking care of him but i think that you know he and i knew that it's what i had to do yeah at that time so that that's really the was the progression of things you know and that's where things i guess you know you could say where where i am now is that's did you ever um because your work really is a throwback in a lot of ways i have certain issues with even that descriptor because i don't really I've never really understood this is a can of worms. I'll I'll try not to open it all the way, but 
What I always say to artists I work with is that I'm not interested in them reinventing the wheel. I just want them to make a great wheel. However, you know, in, in whatever voice is their authentic voice. So I've never been, you know, preoccupied with what's new, what's, you know, trends and art and, and whatnot. I understand the value in change and newness, but it's just not something personally that, that is seductive to me. But it is for most people, and it is really, can really mess with an artist's head. Shooting in the style that you shoot in, which, again, by a lot of people would be considered sort of a throwback, was that ever worrisome to you? Hmm, that's a great question. Let me think of the best way to answer that. I don't. I mean, the the easy answer is no. It was never worrisome to me, because I felt as though what I was doing wasn't necessarily a throwback, but maybe more traditional, which I don't think is a, necessarily a bad foundation of thinking about. <laughs> I agree. Uh, you know, being rooted in <laughs> yes, tradition. I'm with you. You know, because that is very broad. There is this idea of straight photography. It's it's a whole... Well, I would boil it down to something even simpler, which is who cares? Yeah. I mean, who who cares if yeah. you're making great work and it's moving people and it's beautifully executed? Yes. But I think but I think when I was really starting to do this, I'm also a huge history um, nerd, you know, just really just go on deep dives about so many things. I'm sure you've heard a few of my <laughs> rants about random history that I'm just really invested in, but a lot of it's centering around Central Texas and you know, the history of Native people and the freedmen and just really this, how did we get to the social and um, financial climate that is in Central Texas? And so I was thinking a lot about this, that history as well and this, this idea of what, you know, we're able to participate in and be proud of. And so that's also was what was informing, I guess, some of the aesthetic was thinking about like, what has been, what could be mm-hmm. of my actual surrounding, you know, and I didn't have, it wasn't like I had a crazy subject to go work with. I wasn't like going and spending like six months in a foreign place or a, a city that I didn't know. It was like a deep reflection on where I grew up yeah, and what it looks like now. And I think that that conversation is always evolving for me. And so with that it evolves like aesthetic changes mm-hmm. and aesthetic breakthrough so I never felt like pinned down to a traditional style but I have always been motivated by images that make me feel good or make me feel something Something. that I want to like sit with it's like you might listen to an album and there's that one song that completely speaks to you and it's like maybe like nothing else from that band did that and it's it's like a playlist you know it's like images they have different resonance for different things and points in your life and I really enjoy spending time with with images, and a lot of them tend to be older photographs. I know um, we share a love of Milton Rogovin. That's when I knew we were going to get along. Yes, I have a, a Milton Rogovin photo. It's not an actual print; it's just on printer paper, but it's on my fridge because <laughs> I want to see it every single day. And like his unwavering love and commitment to people was so, you know, astounding. Also, yeah. his his claim to only like reaching aesthetic perfection for the fact of. Um, legibility, political, you Mm -hmm. know, um, purposes. And I just thought that that is such an interesting 
take on why he became such a dark room master. But yep. I, I, I love all of those things that go into, you know, what inform me on when I make a photograph. And, you know, I really like for the people in my photos to enjoy how they look. Mm-hmm. You know, that's also important to me. So I don't want to really be representing someone in a way that they don't feel comfortable being put into this thing. So it's not overtly historical or throwback in that sense, but it's just the the medium of silver gelatin prints and but I, I but I eventually will start to make personal work in color and I have the vision for that and that will come much later. You know, I still have fundamental questions about my technique and motives that need to be answered before I have the clarity to then focus on color too. And so when that story comes out, it might not feel as throwback, but I think that it will always in a way be rooted in tradition. Breaking news, Raheem Fortune will be shooting more in color. So, you know, most people are extremely impatient. And I don't want to I don't want to break it down to generation because that just makes me sound really old. But for sure we we do see a lot of that. You don't have that. So, you know, where does that come from? Do, do you have any idea of that you you're just extremely patient and I think I'm bringing that up now in response to what you just said, because what you said was you have these thoughts about shooting in color, but that that's far away because right now you still have a lot of work to do in black and white and a lot you want to express in black and white. And I know you, and I know that what you just said is true, that you're going to just sit in this pocket and that you don't feel urgency to get to the next thing just because you have an idea. Now, I know you have a lot of ideas and, you know, these are things that you and I discuss and, but you're still able to sort of sit in the pocket and get done what you need to get done. So is that just natural temperament or is that something that you, you learned somewhere along the way? Because I think it's essential. Well, it it certainly wasn't always that way. I think it's come as a bit of a luxury of being, you know, having a demand for your work will change that uh, versus working to get recognized will change that dynamic and the urgency that you feel of I'm waiting on this next Mm -hmm. job to get booked. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, it's been a bit of a luxury. I wish I could say that it was like this. I'm extremely meditated and I mean, though I try to be, but it's not coming from that place. It's coming more from a place of, you know, after doing the book, doing a lot of press and yeah, really, I guess seeing what, seeing what that looks like. And there's, there's good and bad things of like, you know, finishing a, a project in that way, because I was able to see once the project is finished, what that feels like. And so I guess with my newer work, the patience comes from knowing the importance of when I do put something out or when I do finish something that how I want that to feel and what I want that moment to be. Um, you know, I just recently went out of the country for the first time to Paris for um, the Paris Photo Festival. And I mean, just some of the people that are, are around, it's like, you know, you have Raymond Meeks is here and, you know, <laughs> Todd Hito is, came and said hello. And I'm like, wow, luckily yeah. this sport got me here. Like I, you know, because I really, it's, it was really such, that project was so natural. And so I just want to make sure that Whatever I make, I feel strongly enough to go back into that space with it. Yeah, you know, yeah. So that's a, that. That's one part of it. Not maybe not the best answer, but I think um, 
also the fact that I work a fair amount in the editorial um, world Mm -hmm. also helps to alleviate some of the pressure of putting something out like my personal workout. So that also helps to build patience. And, but it also comes back to, like I said, like I really just um, am interested in making something that is of quality, but also actually articulates something that I'm working to say. And I think that the first you know, with I Can't Stand to See You Cry, that was so organic because it was my story. Where the second one, it's, you know, where the next project, um, thinking a little bit more of just a, a narrative that you're more crafting, mm-hmm. um, more so than just photographing my immediate friends and family. So, yeah, I, I think that's the the honest answer about the this idea of patience and how, it, yeah, it does have to do with this... Um, idea of your demand and scarcity of jobs and you know but there I really think that you can ruin your work to some people by oversharing it yeah and you know I've seen that I've fallen victim to that and it never really feels good and it kind of gets back to the whole thing about photography should feel good for you you know if it's really this stressful thing it's it's you know that with how many other things in life are stressful uh, this thing that i love so much i don't want it to become that to become my relationship to it so you do have to be selective of how you navigate about it if you've been into a situation where at first the opportunity seems great but when it comes time to make the images it doesn't feel good that can really spoil your relationship to photography so i'm very protective of me just remaining like joyful about it and you know, happy about it and it not becoming something that is going to cause me a bunch of anxiety because this person is doing this or, you know, I try to really avoid that pitfall. Well, I mean, I can definitely speak to the fact that, you know, you're really being honest here. And, you know, my experience working with you is that you, you have a lot of ambivalence about, you know, rightly so, in my opinion, but about, where your work goes out into the world, especially I can't stand to see you cry because it's so personal. And I know for for you, the idea of it sort of like winding up on people's walls that you don't know, and what if they're not a great person, or they don't, they don't understand the work, and it's just sort of, they have it because you're the it guy right now, like that these things are sort of tormenting to you. And that's something that we've had to try and work through together. I mean, I, I totally understand that. But, you know, I know that you are very, because a lot of the work you make is so personal, you are very self protective. It's a tough position. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that ambivalence about working with so you and I started meeting many, many months ago and spending long periods of time together here, just talking and getting to know one another. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, we really like each other and um, have a really warm and, you know, connected relationship. But it wasn't that simple. Um, I mean, I can talk, you know, now or another time about what it was about your work that interested me but because I'm talking to you I think it'd be interesting to hear from you about your anxieties about deciding to to work with a an art dealer yeah so there's there's two things that um really stand out about that 
that question and also just that that time there's two things that are kind of happened at once with me once you had you know shown interest that you wanted to work with me so there's a couple things happening on the surface one is last year i signed with a commercial agent started working with a publisher and so a couple of hands came into the pot and you're you know you just kind of start to feel like I don't know, almost like, you know, you're, you're a little bit like on the, on the bidding block, you know? And so that is not a good feeling. You feel like people are kind of just every, the institution has kind of come in to just take a part of you. And then also the other thing that's happening is when you get those things, you maybe have some very idealistic view of the art world where you're like, oh, wow, I want to be signed with the the biggest gallery and I want to be having these expensive shows and thinking that that is what you want to do because you have no understanding of it, but you have been rewarded in such a way that you think naturally this is the progression in the next thing. But I think with meeting with you, you looked at my work in a way that other people hadn't, you know, from other people that I had worked with, though they were giving it a great amount of care. You in our very first meetings said things that I understood exactly what you were saying about the work and made me realize like, wow, like all of this work has been cared for and vetted, but this is like a deeper level of, of looking at some of these things and everything that you said, maybe to some artists might have been, I don't know want to say crushing, but you know, some people have a difficult time taking an honest criticism and hearing, hearing some of your feedback about the work. It just showed to me that you had a really great understanding of how things were functioning and the possibility of things in a way that I hadn't before experienced. So it really, to me, almost added a level of clarity to something that felt a bit like mystified of like, wow, just kind of, you know, swinging at the pinata and happened to hit, you know, like now the blindfold was off. I understood a bit more about, you know, an addition and about you know, when you go to a museum and you see someone's work and it tells you like the dimensions and it is a, an object, I didn't fully understand that part of photography. And so it was great to, to speak with you and to, to, I was like, wow, well, if I leave, if I don't work with Sasha, like who I'm out here in this cold world, like with (laughs) just to figure all of these things out. And so, no, I really have enjoyed working together and to have someone who um, thinks about photography in such a similar way because it is um, an extremely like vulnerable and yeah, very vulnerable. drawn out process of figuring things out. And often from the outside, it just seems like these artists just have everything figured out and they're just churning out like these incredible projects and these concepts by themselves. But yeah, it was, you know, great just to um, be in a conversation with you who had a, a deeper pool of knowledge and also my experience with going to the photo festival and, you know, constantly just, new experiences uh, around the medium that opened my eyes to different different possibilities. Earlier, you said something, I think it was when you were talking about that assignment where you were shooting those classical musicians. You said something about they were making classical music and they were also doing experimental music and about it's important to you know, try and figure out how is something important. And I wonder, how do you know if something's important? I mean, how do you, when you look at your work, because I, I don't want to say how do you know that, because my guess is you don't know it for a fact, but 
How do you think about it? What gives you the confidence to say, at the very least, I, I think it's important? Yes, it's, um, I think something that's really uh, pivotal to that process is having a stance on things, you know? It's like mm-hmm. not being like anything that comes in is okay, but also not feeling like everything is okay, but knowing why it's not okay, mm-hmm. you know? And that mm-hmm. it might be an aesthetic choice, a lighting technique, that could be a various numbers, but having a stance on what it is that you want, why you want it, and to be able to look at some of your work and say, that's that's not it because this in you know looking at other images and really finding the qualities of about them that's something i constantly do like i'll look at all of uh an artist who i really admired their best work and i'll start to figure out certain indicators of what they were doing like oh wow they would often do this with their you know portraits or oh wow they would often do this and then there's some artists who it completely mystifies me i'm like oh wow like i have no idea how they're creating this right but about it being important is just goes back to that. It's more about, well, I can't really claim for it to be important because I'm not out here trying to like teach the world anything. It's more my own self-exploration. Right. And like I said, caring about how I'm representing something and also being very much in conversation with the people that I'm working with. You know, if I make a photograph for someone in Texas, often I'll bring them back a print and then the photograph ends up on Facebook mm-hmm. or on a wall inside their house and it has a separate life. And I know mm-hmm. some photographers would be like, okay, this is for this book project. Don't share it anywhere. And I'm like, I actually don't mind yeah. if it circulates in this other format. And that kind of continued conversation with the people that I'm photographing, the fact that they're a little bit more aware of like what it is that I'm doing. That's a bit of where the like idea, I guess, of I don't really want to say importance, but no, like, I, I guess, but, like, but, but a certain, like, you know, honesty to yeah, the images. Yeah. And I don't think that for every project is that necessary because it's always just about what your, your opinion is for that or your, you know, intentions are for that particular project. But one of the things that I'm really drawn to is, especially if I'm doing street portraiture, it's who am I photographing? Why am I photographing them? Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing like that is really important. Yeah. And then having those continued conversations with people. And there's definitely something like I'll see a certain quality that I, you know, maybe see in myself or really enjoy about the person and then speak to them about that. And then it's kind of this like mutual recognition where they're like, oh, wow. And then they maybe are are interested in like the camera that, you know, it's always this kind of mutual interest, not really like pressuring anybody. It's just always like a, a real free thing and it's yeah it's very different photographing in texas versus photographing in new york you know and making it's a completely different style of how you interact with people you know here it's like you could go to a busy street on midtown and probably just chop it up with you know a bunch of people but in texas we don't really have especially during covid we don't really have places where people congregate like that so you really have to be on the road you have to do it completely and so that inherently changes the conversation but i would never stop someone to photograph them and not be able to explain to them why like why is this why am i interested in right i mean i know you're very you know you have a certain amount of suspicion of other photographers motives rightly so and so one thing that I've always found really admirable about you is you apply that same suspicion to yourself absolutely absolutely looking at how I'm photographing people if there's any like subconscious like reoccurrences and things like that completely but not to the point of like detriment to where I'm like out in the world like mind flooded with theory and I'm like oh my no once you're out you're working no I I know that so 
I mean, I feel like we probably are at time, even though I could talk to you forever, but the good thing is I do get to talk to you forever. <laughs> Sorry for everyone else out there who doesn't get to talk to him all the time um, because it's a real joy. Well, I mean, I'll just say, because I, I, I think it's important specifically for the audience that listens to this, this podcast, why I wanted to work with you. You know, obviously people who do what I do for a living get varying degrees of asks. I am at the point in my career where I obviously, maybe not obviously, but I get, you know, just a huge amount of, of submissions. And I see a lot of work that I, that is really good. And I'm introduced to a lot of artists by colleagues of mine, people making suggestions, and the work's great. So there, there are people out there, you know, making really wonderful work. I have a hard cap on how many people I represent because it's, you know, one person and it's important to me to be as available as I possibly can be to my artists. And as you are learning, <laughs> um, I spend a lot of time with the artists I represent. So, you know, aside from the fact that it's really important to like someone personally because you're going to be around them a lot, these qualities that we've talked about today are those things that I look for. So not feeling the need to reinvent the wheel, which I've witnessed in many artists can literally kill their creative process because you start focusing on absolutely the wrong thing. Your confidence in sticking with your vision, your absolutely uncynical nature, which we, we haven't talked about. I haven't named that yet, but I'm sure people listening have figured that out. And it's funny because I think, uh, not last episode, but the one before that, Michael and I did a little just 10-minute happy holidays, and I read something that Bob Adams, that Robert Adams wrote, and I'm so tempted, I'm not going to do it, but I'm so tempted to read it again because you have basically talked in this way that exemplifies this way of being an artist in the world, which is an open-heartedness, an interest in seeing things no matter the circumstance and figuring out how to make maybe the ordinary precious and give it a certain dignity and all the while be continuing to push yourself to learn. And when you push yourself to learn, because you are, whenever I see you, you arrive with a million new things you've been looking at that you want to talk about, which is incredible. You're always way ahead of me. But what that says to me is that you know you don't know everything. And so that sort of humble willingness to keep growing and getting getting better is very unusual, in my opinion. So from my point of view, it's just a complete thrill and honor to work with you. So why don't we end on that note? Thank you so much. Thank you for, so much for having me, Sasha. Thanks for hanging with me. And, and, and I'll just tell the audience that when we wrap here, you and I are going to go in the other room and do some editing. So <laughs> no, thank you um, so much. I, yeah, I hope that people enjoy the, the conversation and yeah, get, get inspired to just go out there and yeah, make some photographs and have fun. I second that. Okay, Raheem, thank you again. And uh, all right. Bye, everyone. All right. Goodbye. 
Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.